0: It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, two short conversations I had at the Aspen Ideas Festival, a yearly event put on by the Aspen Institute and the Atlantic Magazine. It takes place in, wait for it, Aspen, Colorado, which is very beautiful, but also very full of smart people. It's also, to be honest, full of a lot of people who just like to hear themselves talk, but I went there to look for some interviews and chat with people whose work I admire, So here are two of those. The first is with Charles Duhigg, the New York Times writer who writes about habit and social science and technology. He wrote the books The Power of Habit and his latest book is Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. The second interview is with Marcus Bullock, who has set up an app and a project called Flickshop, which tries to make it easier for family and loved ones to send letters to people in prison. He's a fascinating person, he spent time in prison himself, and he has lots of big ideas about how technology can help solve real-world problems. So here they are, and it's worth noting for context, the way I was able to find people to talk to was by literally walking around the festival, grabbing someone and saying, hey, let's just have a chat on this bench or under this tree or whatever. So these were both conducted outside, and you can just imagine some big mountains in the background. So here we go. The first one is with Charles Duhigg of the New York Times. One thing I have touched on a lot on this show and think about a lot, and I suspect you think about a lot too, is is like the quantified life and whether we're living lives where we get more and more feedback and more and more data just about ourselves. Yeah. And I was wondering if we could just start there. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting you you mentioned that because – for my last book, one of my initial theses going in was that much of productivity is about data, right? There's these maxims that we've all been exposed to that you can change what you measure, that the quantified self movement is making people you know smarter, faster, and better. Um, and and I was sort of surprised to how many skeptics I encountered. People who study productivity, who study personal productivity people executives who are incredibly productive themselves or have transformed their companies into being more productive who said some something on the variation of yeah we started by getting a whole bunch of data and that just didn't work right that basically we either had a fire hose and so we stopped looking at it or we fooled ourselves into thinking that we knew a lot more than we did because of the data that was available to us and what we had to do and and that took us down the wrong path and we had to hit a reset button at some point. And that actually brought me to this whole field of research about how data becomes knowledge and what almost everyone I talked to said in some way. And there's actually a whole school of academic study on this was oftentimes to make data work for you. Paradoxically, you have to slow it down and make it harder to absorb. And this is in the literature known as disfluency. Right. You create disfluency in order to make data absorption higher. And why is that? I think it's because oftentimes there's a lot of theories as to why and and we're still working on trying to understand exactly what the right answer is. But I think that the most overwhelmingly because it seems intuitively true to most of us is that in order to learn something, you actually have to play with it. And to play with it, you have to you have to use it in a way that is not simple at first. Right. So one of the best studies that one of the studies I like the most is that. Um, now that we have w- scales that can send your weight to, to an iPhone, I, I have one of those scales myself, a Worthing scale, um, it makes all those pretty charts, right? And you can look at that chart, and it's so easy to see how your weight has changed over the last two weeks, and that it turns out that the correlation between that and losing weight
0: is almost non-existent. And that's because it's not actually connecting that to something that actually changes your life. It's because it's
1: so easy to look at that chart that you look at it and then you just look at something else. And so what, what one of these researchers I was talking to said is in his, in the study group he's looking at, what he told people is go ahead and look at the chart and then every Sunday make that chart yourself by hand. Write out on Monday what your weight was and on Tuesday and, and start drawing the line on a piece of paper. Right, You're basically recreating what's already on your smartphone and it's going to look uglier and worse. But he said this actually ca- caused bigger behavior change because when people are drawing that chart they think to themselves, oh my, my weight went up on Wednesday. And I remember on Wednesday I woke up late and I got something disgusting to eat and I was rushing to the to work and I didn't get a chance to work out. Right, You start seeing these connections. But you only see those connections if you interact with the data. And so in many ways the question isn't just how can you collect the data the question is can you collect the data and then force yourself to do something with it that makes it into actual knowledge
0: so that scale that's sending me a chart about my weight why is the manufacturer of that scale not taking that next step that will actually change my behavior is it because they're lazy and they know that a pretty chart will will be enough for me or is it because they have some perverse incentive to not fix the problem? They're
1: they're trying to solve that problem as actively as anyone else. And I I don't know where things because I've never spoken to them, but Nike is a company that I've talked to a number of times. And the Nike Fuel Band, if you remember, when they had the Nike Fuel Band, they still have the the website where you can upload all of your data. Mm -hmm. Nike would do these intense experiments to try and figure out how do we change people's behavior based on giving them access to data. And they came up with new and fancier dashboards. And what they eventually found was it's very hard to create a system where you get people to interact with the data if they don't want to. So if you think about a dashboard, what a dashboard does is it makes it easier to react to information. And you can make that dashboard more and more fluent. But if you want to get someone to do something, something that's hard, you can put up questions, you can have quizzes, you can have all these things that we think of as real pains in the ass right. because we buy access to that dashboard, not to do more work, but to do less work. And so the the critical missing part is it's not that Nike and Worthings and these others don't want us to do the work. It's that we don't know that we need to do the work and educating us about that is not only hard, it's sometimes impossible because I think technology should make things
0: easier, not harder,
1: even if harder is better for me.
0: And as is the case with kind of almost every uh, rush into data, you're bringing your own biases and your own patterns and all the kind of Real world stuff to it, and so you only kind of see what you want to see. You only act on what you want to act on.
1: I think that's right. So, so let me talk about a success. Actually, story sure. is in, in "Smarter, Faster, Better." This is actually one of the chapters. Is the Cincinnati public school system? So, the Cincinnati public school system has terrible has historically had terrible schools, particularly for elementary, and they have been at the forefront of data analytics. They've bought every single system that exists out there to collect data on their kids, and so for ten years they would basically send teachers these really fancy reports beautiful, beautiful. They they hired a bunch of data visualization specialists. None of it worked. Basically, the teachers would look at the report and throw it away because they didn't know what to make of it. So then they started this new thing called the Elementary Initiative. And the first principle of the Elementary Initiative was that you had to take a closet or a conference room and turn it into what's known as a data room. And in that data room, the teachers actually had to transcribe student scores onto index cards <laughs> and then po- post them on the wall and put them into piles. So they were adding disfluency to the system. They were Making teachers essentially do redundant work to make them interact with the data worked really well. The school scores went up enormously because of this and other data initiatives at the schools. So the question is, so here's an example of adding disfluency to a system that actually worked. Did any of the teachers willingly do it? No. No. So basically what they had to do is they had to bribe a couple of teachers with extra cash incentives to do this. Then they'd tell everyone else they were going to fire them unless they went into the the data room once a week. And only once the teachers discovered on their own how much more effective this was at helping them teach their kids, did they start doing it on their own. Now, these are teachers who are dedicated to educating students. These are not people who don't want to learn new ways to teach. But the point is that we all have an instinct to say simply doing more boring work is not the answer to things. We all want to look for that smart workaround because we want to take advantage of, of our brains. Hmm. And the truth of the matter is this is why it's so hard for Nike and Worthings is it's not that we don't know what the answer is, it's that most of us don't believe that interacting with the data is actually the answer. We think that the data should give us a silver bullet and and frankly like Five thirty-eight. the chapter I wrote about target and the power yeah. of habit that feeds into that narrative, right? Because we say, here's data. It opens up doors. It shows you hidden correlations. It's like a magic bullet. That's
0: incredibly seductive. Yeah.
1: But what most people don't see is they don't see how much hard work you and Nate silver and I and target do behind the scenes in order to make that data something that yields up a genuine insight.
0: But going back to how people process it, um, Regular people, for lack of a better word, not people who you know look at data for for the, for a living. As you were describing the Cincinnati school system and, and the effect on teachers, like I was watching you describe that, and in my head I, I went back and forth like four times on like this makes him feel good about humanity, or this is dispiriting. <laughs> no, no, no. I think this means that like we, we he likes hum- the way humans are are weird. So like, where do you come down? I mean, is this like are all of our quirks and inefficiencies what make us human, or is it just like frustrating that we can't take the shortcut that's presented to us.
1: Well, so let me phrase that in a slightly different way, yeah. which cuz I think it's a good question. I I think though that one of the ways to think about this is we have this amazing brain that's evolved over millions of years that we're now trying to apply to problems that have emerged in the last decade. And And what we know about productivity is that people, the most productive people tend to be ones who come up with like tricks to make themselves think just half an inch deeper about Mm -hmm. things like their goals and how to maintain focus and priorities and how to self-motivate. And data is the same thing that, that we have these brains that are so good at picking up on patterns, right? We can look at a field and we can identify the irregular shape that says that there's a threat there. Or we can, we can figure out just by planting crops which food we, continue, we should continue planting. We are so good at pattern identification. And that is inspiring, the downside of that is an over-reliance on believing that we can identify patterns. And so when we make data so easy that the pattern just jumps out Mm -hmm. at us, we stop thinking about what the pattern might represent. And so we just have to be on guard a little bit to when you have a powerful tool, which our brain is, it can cause you to slip. And so I don't think it's dispiriting or helpful. I think it's just a reminder. Usually the answer is somewhere in between. It's just a reminder that thinking has always been the killer app. Throughout history, the people who did best were the ones who thought the most and pushed themselves to think the most. And data shouldn't relieve the burden of printing of thinking. It should make it easier for mm-hmm. us to think more and think more deeply.
0: Right. And there's also sort of a a democracy element here too, which is like people should have access to you know, as much as the deluge of data can cause, you know, inefficient thinking or can lead us down a path that isn't that isn't productive, we also don't want to live in a world where like only People who, for whatever reason, merit access to data have it, you know, I mean, I think this is a a, a lame example, but like, I think of the, the, when like Twitter all of a sudden started giving everyone data on every tweet they sent, you know, and it was just like, all of a sudden I, or, you know, you have a lot of Twitter followers and someone who has like 50 Twitter followers can get the same sort of. Feedback on the effect they're having. Well, and I like the notion that it's democratic in that way.
1: Absolutely. And, and here's another way of thinking about democracy I think is etiquette. So take telephones. When the telephone was first invented, there's all these accounts in popular literature from that period, you know, the, the 1940s and 30s and, and, and about that period, of people complaining about the prevalence of telephones. They would get telephone calls all the time from someone who had this meaningless question, where do I go to get the paper? Or they had these party lines, and people would just pick up the phone for hours at a time and listen to other people talking on the party line. And, and the, the complaints that you hear then are very similar to the complaints you hear now about email. Right, that like Mm -hmm. I get too many emails, it's overwhelming, why do people reply all the time? It's literally like exactly what we went through with telephones. What's interesting is that an etiquette develops around telephones. Nobody would ever call you now for 90% of the things that they would email you for, because it's seen as rude. And there is this, when you talk about democracy, the democratizing effect is learning how to think about some new technology, learning how to think about an etiquette of email, or or telephones and data is the same way when what will really be democratizing is teaching people how to think about data in a way that they can use that data to improve their own lives that's why the cincinnati experiment is so powerful is because in addition to helping teachers become better teachers they're also teaching kids how to think about i have access to all this information i'm going to ignore 70% 70% of it, and the other 30%, I'm going to force myself to interact with it. I'm going to use this new word I learned in a sentence. I'm going to come up with some mnemonic to remember this fact I just learned. Teaching people how to think about data is the democratizing tool, not giving them access to the data in the first place. It's teaching them to think about it.
0: And so, and where does that literacy come from? I mean, is it in our schools? Is it in books like yours? I th- Well,
1: I think increasingly it is in our schools, right? I think that you're increasingly seeing... Uh, An approach to education and out of necessity that says to kids memorize simply finding the answer isn't the hard thing anymore. Right. Knowing the answer to what is the capital of Michigan. You can Google that in a second. So making you memorizing memorize it is pointless teaching you to find the right question. That's really hard. And that's one of the huge revolutions we're seeing in schools right now is this move away from learning facts to learning question asking which in itself is how do you add disfluency
0: to a world in which data is, ples- is right. plentiful. It's the whole thinking fast, thinking slow thing, examining your priors, really sort of like the process, not not the outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And saying like, look, if you find a, a, a Google page that seems to contain all the answers to this test, how do you break that information down in a way? Because I'm going to ask you questions that might not look like that page.
0: So um, I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about your work um and how you see that fitting into this i mean you know cuz a book like yours when it lands and does well to some extent i think lands for a lot of the reasons that we've been pointing out as problematic in this conversation right which people are like the easy answers are in here right i can buy this at an airport i can read it and it's going to provide me a shortcut yeah. Do you worry about that?
1: Well, um, so one of the things that's interesting is that in the the, um, the Amazon reviews of Smarter, Faster, Better, they tend to toggle between like five like five stars, like I love it, or one star that says basically, I read this whole thing and I didn't <laughs> learn like the one lesson about how to be productive tomorrow. Right? Like right. I'm so pissed off at this book. Actually, they say like there's too many stories in this book. It should have been 20 pages instead of 300 pages, which to me actually suggests a problem with how they're looking for productivity. To sure. To your point. Nobody ever, a life hack, let's say a life hack makes you 2% more productive, which would be like the best life hack on the face of the planet, right? But 2% more productivity is almost nothing. That's not going to make you richer or thinner or happier. Mm -hmm. Like a 40% increase in your personal productivity, a 20% increase, that's something that's significant. That doesn't happen from one hack. That comes from learning how to think slightly differently. And you don't learn from, you don't learn how to think slightly differently from 10 pages or a 15 minute TED talk, right? You learn how to think differently from four years of college. When you go and you take a, a course at college that changes your life, it's a semester long. You're spending all this time in lectures and you're, then you're reading books. So here's what I think my books do. I hope if they succeed is they take these complicated ideas and they embed them in stories that are easier to read. And because the story is kind of fun and easy to read You're willing to spend more time with that idea, and it's easier to remember. And I'm not going to tell you that that idea is going to change your life, but I will tell you that that idea will start you down a path Mm -hmm. that might give you an insight that is life-changing, and then I'm going to make the entry to that path, to the trailhead, as pleasant as possible (laughs) by entertaining you. And then from there, it's honestly like, how much are you willing to walk down the path, and, and can the world help you do that? All right. Charles Duhigg,
0: thanks. Thanks for having this me. This was fun. Thanks. That's Charles Duhigg, author of Smarter, Faster, Better, and The Power of Habit. Up next is my chat with Marcus Bullock of Flickshop. But first, this week's What's the Point is brought to you by Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like, and with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Texture makes it easy to find articles you care about from your favorite publications. I've been reading GQ a lot now that Katie Weaver writes for them. I try to read The New Yorker and browse through ESPN the magazine each week. But the really cool thing is that Texture and its editorial team recommend stuff for me every day, often from magazines I wouldn't otherwise check out. Inside the app, there are top stories and new and noteworthy sections updated throughout the day, so you can catch up on the latest articles. Right now, Texture is offering What's the Point listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash point. You'll get immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. You can start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash point. Once again, that's texture.com slash point. Okay, back to the show and my conversation with Marcus Bullock of FlickShop. FlickShop is an app he developed to help people outside of prison communicate with people inside of prison. Through the app, you write a note or take a photo or some other sort of message, and FlickShop prints it out and mails it into the prison. It's a simple solution to a really deep problem, as you'll hear Marcus describe and Bullock thinks about this in the larger context of the connection between prisoners and their communities outside of prison. So he's also working on what he calls the Flick Shop School of Business, which helps people land on their feet when they get out of prison. So anyway, here's my chat with Marcus, once again from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Marcus Bullock, welcome to 5:38, and welcome, I guess, I don't know if I can welcome you to Aspen, but here we are in the middle of a park in Aspen, but thanks for thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. So, I think we'll get into a little bit of, like, the, the problem that you're trying to solve and how you define it. But I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the first time you realized that it was a problem and how you realized that it was a problem. The derivative of Flickshop comes from me being in prison.
2: Um, because I was in prison, I understand how important... Male is to guys in prison I mean it means everything It means everything to the guys It means everything to the families It connects the guys It keeps them connected to it Through one of the hardest times In their lives But also it maintains um, The connection with the family To prepare them for reentry. Uh, when did I know That it was uh, a big problem That we were solving when I was in prison, and I looked forward to mail, and then when I came home and realized that I didn't have time to write letters and send pictures to guys.
0: And when you say mail, I mean you mean mail. You mean handwritten letters. Handwritten right? That's still letters. the main way of communication. Absolutely, uh, and, and, and there there are free, a few prisons
2: that have you know some small email services or what have you, but for the most part, I mean the way that we communicate with one another, um, Ie the social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, now you know Snapchat is huge. Uh, text messaging, emailing All of these modes of communication These guys don't have in prison uh, And the expectation is for these guys To come home from prison And to return back to their communities And their families like they never left But extracting mail from the guys because Simply because we don't have the time to write letters um,
0: It really, really hurts A huge population of people what do you mean you, you don't have the time to write letters?
2: Well, I mean, when was the last time that you picked up a pen and paper yeah. and wrote a letter and then found an envelope and then tried to Google an address to a prison and then write it on the envelope and then go to the post office and purchase a stamp and then put it on there on the envelope and then go to Walgreens or CVS and actually develop pictures.
0: Put those in the envelope mm-hmm. and then drop those in the mailbox. And so even for families on the and friends on the outside, as much as there's an incentive to stay in touch with a loved one, all of those technological barriers you just brought up, it makes it it must make it really hard.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, what happens is you tell your brother, Hey, you know what, man, I'm gonna write you, I yeah. wanna tell you what the family's doing, I'm gonna send you some pictures of, you know, of our sisters graduation you, you tell them that and you really mean it you really think that you're going to do it and then tomorrow
0: just doesn't happen so going back to the experience of just being in touch with a loved one who's on the outside like what is that lifeline like i mean what is that how how does that play into the prison experience and how much does it, of a difference does it make to someone on the inside
2: the easiest way for me to be able to answer that question is to, to, to tell you about my my own experience uh coming home from prison i was released from prison in 2004 after serving eight years in prison i was arrested when i was 15 years old um i I got sentenced to uh 23 years to life with 15 years of that sentence being suspended by by my judge and it forced me to be able to create relationships with not only just my immediate family but some of the broader people in my family whom i just craved attention from um and what happens is when you You create these relationships and build onto them, you know, via these letters and photos and phone calls and you know these collect calls and visits. You build these relationships, and that is what was paramount for me when I came home to start my first business, which was a construction company, um, and then which allowed me later to be able to launch the tech company, Flickshop.
0: And I guess we hear a lot about how problematic. Relationships within prisons can be. You know, is that because there's this vacuum of the healthy relationships on the outside? Well, first, th- those, because those are the stories that you, you yeah, hear those sure. stories.
2: Those are the stories you hear. Those are the stories that are entertaining. Those are the stories that are sexy. Um, and even though we want those stories to not exist, we're entertained by them. So... Uh, we hear more of those. Mm-hmm. What you don't hear about are the guys like myself and um, the guy who I was actually arrested with, my co-defendant, uh, Dwayne. I mean, he just graduated from Yale Law. Um, and all of our friends, from in, in our circle of people that were in prison with us, we still communicate with, and there's a genuine love there, yeah. genuine relationships. I mean, we grew up in prison. I was 15. He was 16. There, these men almost practically raised us while we were in prison. Um, so you hear those stories about the, you know, all of the chaos and pandemonium, but um, there's a, there there are tons and tons of pieces of stories of love and adoration and and the desire to see the other man succeed.
0: So walk me through the project that you have, and you know what it's actually like to communicate using your app.
2: Sure. So uh, the user will download our app. The app is free in the Apple and Android stores. Or you can go to FlickShop.com and use uh, the web-based platform for FlickShop. But you download the app for free. And it's very, very similar to an Instagram or Facebook. You know, you add a photo. uh, You type some quick text. Hey, you know, I love you. I miss you. Keep your head up. Um, If there's anything you need, let me know. Write me. Call me. Um, I'll see you soon. And then you press send. And then we take that and we convert it, put it on side of a, put it on a postcard, and mail it directly to them. And it's only ninety nine cents for each one. Uh, so when you factor in the, fa- you know, we factor in the cost of even postage and paper or ink for a photo, um, it's 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 a really
0: really good deal. Have you encountered any resistance from pri- from the prison system for this project? Initially. Uh, we spent about a, a year
2: going, jumping through the bureaucratic red tape of the prisons from, you know, different states and their Department of Corrections and even the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, but once we go through the education, the education process, you know, to educate them and, and really help them understand how it helps the facilities, uh, then they've been um, really, really excited about it. It's really How cool. does it help the facilities? Well, it helps the facilities in, in several ways. One... Uh, it's a postcard, so it's not a letter that you have to rifle through and try to read and try to decode if someone wants to write something. Because everything gets inspected. Because everything okay. gets inspected in incoming mail. Uh, so now it's, a, it's you just have a postcard. You look at it. You know, you flip it around. You know, you read through. You only get three hundred characters, so it's like double the, the size of a tweet. Um, You only get 300 characters, you rifle it, and then you just go ahead and give it to them. And then it's also coming from uh, a company, you know, a company that you know and that you trust. And it's not coming from a
0: a person who may be trying to smuggle contraband uh, through the mail. Do you envision a day where there's technology inside prisons that would allow more communication like this? No, absolutely. And what does that look like? I
2: think think it has to happen. Um, You know, we're on the front side of the technology technology and how we... uh, Created the conduit for the between the family and the guys in prison, um, but there has there's there's going to be an evolution of of technology that's going to be uh, very security friendly that allow the guys to be able to communicate back with uh, the families that um, in prison. It's very similar to what you saw with cassette tapes um, in prison. They're even they're still. Prisons right now that won't allow anything outside of a cassette tape, and then um, MP3 players got introduced. It was a long, you know, a long process. Well, after the iPod was introduced, but uh, one nonetheless that you can't avoid when you, when you start talking about technology.
0: It sounds like you're going, you know, almost prison by prison and building a relationship. But is there like a large scale policy change that you're advocating for? I mean, what what is actually the big change that needs to happen?
2: That's a great question. So The the, the, the Flickshot mobile app is there To keep the families connected It's very simple, we want to keep the families connected We're big on that, we know how important family is um, To the core structure Of the community uh, But but even bigger than that uh, I want to use my, opp- you know, my opportunity to have a soapbox now To be able to talk about different The different things that plague some of the guys In there, including policy uh, When I, Even uh, all the way down to the, sm- the, 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 the Larger conversations of uh, solitary for confinement for children, right? It gives us an opportunity to. It gives me an opportunity to be able to lend my voice uh, to a topic um, that is very dear to most of us, um, especially now, even with the president getting involved in a conversation. Uh, but hey, I can come and say, hey, listen, I was 15 in prison, I was 16, you know, in prison, I was 17 in prison, I was 18 in prison, I was one of those kids, and I spent a considerable amount of time in solitary. And let me tell you how that impacts. Now, you know how it impacts not only myself, but my family and what that means for them and so forth and so on.
0: And one of the things I know that you care about a lot is, and that there's a larger conversation around is, is re-entry. And I guess, you know, the whole conversation we've been having so far about the importance of those ties. I mean, you talked about that those ties are important for when you're in prison, but also really important to, for re-entry. So how do you see this playing into that larger conversation? What other work are you doing in terms of getting people Back on their feet once they leave prison. So this is a two-part
2: question. One is how how are we re, re relating or interweaving this into the reentry conversation, and yeah. then two, um, why is that important? So let me go with the two first. It's important because um, what we're doing with Flick Shop is important. It's very important because. Without the, commu- the constant communication between the loved one and, their per- and the person inside of the prison, when they come home, they, they, imagine being gone from your closest loved ones for 10 years, and then you were just gone. You didn't talk to them. You didn't speak to them. You didn't see them grow. You didn't know about a college graduation. You didn't hear about birthdays. You didn't in- and see them, nothing, no communication whatsoever, and then you saw them 10 years later. Your relationship is going to be completely different with them now. Um, And that's what's happening in prisons. Uh, Now, what are we doing to impact that? Uh, I got the question a lot when I first launched Flick Shop, um, what separated me from the other guys came on from prison. Like, why am I so different? What are the things that made me different? Um, And why am I the anomaly? And I hated that. I hated the fact that the people called me an anomaly. I'm like, "What, what are you talking about? There are tons of guys. Who come home and, and, and don't recidivate? Um, they come home and, and, and they're home for a long time. Um, never go back to prison. Uh, the, the, but even when I try to answer the question, so that I, that's just my irritation. No, my I, <laughs> I hear you. Even when I try to answer the question, I, you know, I, I lean on the, the family connection again. My mom was very instrumental um, in making sure that not only I, I was. You know, okay, while I was in prison, and had everything I needed while I was there, and kept me, you know, kept the relationship and the communication strong. Uh, But when I came home, I didn't have a lot of those issues that a lot of the guys do have, um, with housing and the pressures of, of thinking that they have to come home and provide for other family members. All of those things are happening with these guys. Then I didn't have that. I didn't have that issue. So. Uh, because family was so important to me and because I understood how I built my business, I created the Flick Shop School of Business, which based, which really gives the architectural blueprint to success or at least markets to success and um, what it is that I did in order to be able to kind of sort of jump over some of those hurdles.
0: So what are the most important lessons that you're trying to work with people coming home on?
2: Really, to be honest, is really a, a tons and tons of soft skills that's really where the all of the work is is happening I, to, what do you mean by soft skills soft skills meaning how to communicate how to how to dress for an interview how to apply for jobs um, how to be able to begin how to begin to, to, to build on relationships with a, a partner um, you know a lot of the things that
0: a lot of people take for granted take right? for
2: granted I mean and then you remember I mean you from for me right I was gone from just being around other women uh, for eight years of my life. So, how do you come home and communicate with a girl? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you're talking to her, is this completely different than how I was talking to these guys back, you know, behind a, a barbed wire fence for eight long years? Um, so, reintroducing those small, soft skills that's one. And we use entrepreneurship uh, to be able to create an atmosphere uh, that, where they want to learn and they want to engage. And it doesn't help that I was actually there where they were, um, so I understand the problems that they're going to go through.
0: All right. Well, Marcus Bullock, I want to say thank you for all your work. This is inspiring, and thank you for putting. This is definitely the weirdest place I've ever interviewed someone about a serious <laughs> issue. Uh, we're in the middle of a park. There's mountains everywhere. <laughs> but, but it's uh, gorgeous, though. It it is gorgeous. It's really, really gorgeous out good. here. Um, I'm grateful to that. Yeah. yeah but you know, there's a so. disconnect between how pleasant it is here and how serious the work you're doing is. But I really, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I admire it, and uh, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much again for having me, Joe.
0: That's Marcus Bullock of Flick Shop. F L I K Shop. Thanks to him and Charles Duhigg, and thanks to the Aspen Ideas Festival for letting me wander around and do some interviews. What's the Points editor is Chadwick Matlin. Lucina Malesio is our intern. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. My name is Jody Abergan. You can find me on Twitter or email podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. If you're a fan of What's the Point, leave us a rating or a review in iTunes. It really does help others discover the show, or, you know, you could just tell someone about What's the Point. And we've got something special planned for next week, a new science series that I'm really excited about. So this is a really good time to spread the word. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. You have a spider on you. I do. Sweet. How big? (laughs) There we go. It's on your not 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 small. (laughs)